Welcome all you adventurous readers to the epic worlds of Alfred Durblin, where we explore the life and works of this fascinating but little known early 20th century writer, brought to you by the website beyondalexanderplatz.com. Welcome to episode six, where we'll be looking at possibly Dublin's most controversial epic, Mountains, Oceans, Giants. Oh, Chris, I'm really looking forward to this one because um, it's quite pertinent in today's uh, climate change and, um, you know, uh, environmental impact of things and, and such a such a, a hot topic, certainly at the moment. And we teach in... Um, schools and and you know the Earthshot prize and all of this kind of thing so um let's talk about what the basic theme then is of mountains oceans and giants but or actually before we talk about the theme when did um alfred derblin write this epic okay this one came out in the early 1920s okay he was writing it he was thinking about it from 1921 uh, he was doing the research and the writing very intensively during around 1922. Mm-hmm. It was published in 1924. But you you mentioned the environmental and the climate aspects of it. Possibly even more important, and as an impetus for it, was the technology aspect. Right. Have human beings lost control of the technologies that they're inventing? And is this the basic overarching theme of mountains, oceans and giants? Technological hubris is very definitely a kind of central driving theme because the whole concept of de-icing Greenland Mm -hmm. is a monstrous technological overreach with horrendous consequences. Okay, so humans versus nature. This is the interesting, humans versus nature or humans with nature. Mm -hmm. And Dublin actually changed his... Stance, or he had the ambivalence of his stance comes through in the rather uh, complicated structure of the um, epic. Mm-hmm. He couldn't quite settle all the way through whether he wanted human beings to triumph mm-hmm. over nature or whether he wanted human beings to recognize the um, the power of the world. Interesting. And now we know, um, I don't know, if did we mention this? Certainly in previous episodes, we've we've definitely said that mountains, oceans and giants is a look forward to the 27th century. Could I just correct you there, please, Katie? Okay. You have inserted a conjunction in that title. Oh, I did. I put and. There's no and. Mountain. And it's an interesting, an interesting feature is that critics who don't like the book tend to insert commas between the three nouns in the title. Just indicating, oh, they're rather dismissive of it. You know, they're not going to go along with this peculiar punctuation. Can I just... Dublin. Oh, no. Do you know, in the... Um, so as we record things, so the, the very first thing that I do when I, sat da- when I sit down with Chris is to write the episode title onto the podcasting recording... Um, uh, equipment that we've got and I've put commas in oh no <laughs> right I'm I will edit it oh my goodness it's very intense here yes okay right okay so no commas in the no I will remove them with haste yes okay <laughs> so where were we we were saying uh I was reminding uh reminding you and everybody so we might we might not know but hopefully we do now that 
Um, this was his most extravagantly imagined epic that looked forward to the 27th century, um, the melting of Greenland and the horrific aftermath. Yes. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm fascinated with, with how he even came up with this, where he even thought, oh, I know, I'm going to write an epic that is so far into the future. Um, that's a good yeah. idea. <laughs> how did he right. come up with that? Well, I think it was, and how did he research it? It was this sense that, you know, I mean, that as the war had shown, you know, technology was outstripping humanity's ability to control it mm-hmm. because of the the way that the, you know, the arms industry was allowing ever better ways of killing large numbers of people. Yeah. Um, and devastating. And, so was, and devastating landscapes, landscapes and so on, yes. Mm-hmm. He, um, pondering this theme of technological hubris, he says, right, well, what would be some interesting things? And he started looking around, oh, uh, the... Uh, the Earth. He wanted this to be on the Earth. He didn't want to set off in a spaceship mm-hmm. like the the kind of more pulp science fiction uh, writers would do. Right. This is going to be on the Earth. Yes. Um, he started exploring uh, atlases and books on glaciology mm-hmm. and ocean currents mm-hmm. and the weather uh, and so on. And the very first episode he wrote comes quite late in the book actually it's where right at the beginning when the fleets are starting to set sail towards iceland to capture the heat from the icelandic volcanoes Mm -hmm. the captain of part of the uh, one flotilla within this fleet decides he's going to head off and he's just going to set up on his own and not take part in this mad venture interesting and he has a technology which basically excavates a hole in the sea and enables his vessels to sink down onto the bottom of the sea, where they're going to be safe from the the town zones and the, and the mad politicians in the town zones. Oh, okay. But this technology to stop the water coming in and flooding them is a fairly horrendous technology, of course. Right. But that was the very first episode he wrote, and then it sort of grew into this very well-imagined and, and very, very um, intensely written sequence of episodes mm-hmm. about the the volcanoes of Iceland, mm-hmm. basically the destruction of Iceland, mm-hmm. and then the sailing off to Greenland mm-hmm. and the strange way that nature is responding to the all the power that's been captured in this webbing that they've uh, laid over the volcanoes to catch the catch the uh, the heat power. Wow. And then getting to Iceland and the other technologies that enable them to lay this heat over the ice to mm-hmm. melt it. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's sort of explosions like sort of an H-bomb over Greenland, you know, when they turn on the, the voltage to release the energy. Woomph, this great pink sky lights up ahead of them and everyone's absolutely horrified and, you know, dreadfully impressed as if a god has come down to earth. So, wow. Uh, very intense. And this... Very intensely imagined. Mm-hmm. He and were there other were there other examples of people writing these um, like large science fiction epics at the same time? Well, well yes. I mean, European literature in in between the the two big wars uh, produced quite a few. Um, I mean, Zamyatin in in Russia mm-hmm. uh, with his book We, where everyone lives in a glass house. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had H.G. Wells, The Shape of Things to Come, mm-hmm. and then Aldous Huxley, of course, Brave New World. Mm-hmm. Um, but even before the First World War, 
um, E.M. Forster had written a, a short story which appeared in a very obscure periodical um, called The Machine Stops. Huh. Which I actually like. Quite. I, I discovered it just in time to include a mention of it in my forward to the wow. translation. It's quite different yeah. from a room with a view. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was. It was. It was. That's I my favourite. Read books. it. Yes. It's, uh, uh, that was. Uh, that was an interesting find. Oh. Um, but where were we? Oh yeah. I, I, but the intensity of that writing almost led Dublin Dublin to have a a nervous breakdown. Uh, he actually shut his medical practice for during, a month during the writing of Mountain Ocean Giant. He closed it. Yeah, he closed his practice for a month to do some intense writing, and then later that year, he actually moved out from the family for three months to a, a, a leafy suburb on the other side of of, of Berlin, oh. so that he could be be utterly dedicated to getting all these ideas down into paper, but a very, very intense uh, period of writing. That's really interesting. And so had his stomach issues stopped? I'm not sure if he had sort of recurrent problems. Was he in good health when he moved out for the three months? Uh, I mean, pretty much, I think, yes. But uh, yes, but he he became terribly overwrought in writing this. And he... (sighs) Somehow he'd written these wonderful episodes, well, wonderful, these, 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 these wonderful, appalling episodes about the Iceland-Greenland right. venture. Yes. And then he was thinking, well, I need to put down some preliminaries as to how humanity got to that stage. Mm-hmm. And as he was sort of working his way through that, he, I think he was kind of losing confidence a little bit, and he was going down some side alleys which, as he said, that everything threatened to become a novel in its own right, and he had to be constantly sort of pulling, pulling back and mm-hmm. saying, "No, that really doesn't belong here." Unfortunately, um, two parts of the nine-part novel mm-hmm. really, really did belong somewhere else, right? Uh, because they they really impede the progress towards the the main point of it, which is the Iceland Greenland venture. Uh, now, Chris, you have brought up an interesting controversial point there because I seem to remember something about you saying and so I made an editorial decision. Editorial interference. Yes. Yes, I'm guilty. And we're always talking about this. You know, what right what do you have to do that? I didn't entirely (laughs) blot it out because all the excised passages so just to be uh, clear we we should be clear so when you um translated mountains oceans giants you decided that there were a, a couple of parts two parts well part it was two storylines two storylines you know across several pages but they're two storylines which really Did, didn't belong okay but rather than simply high-handedly not letting the reader know anything at all about these deleted things, what we agreed with the publisher was put a little superscript number every time every time there was a deletion, mm-hmm. and all those numbered deletions are then available on the website. Right. Uh, at some point, we're probably going to have to find a more secure home than an archive, the website, an archive for, yeah. for those deleted passages. But they are available for those... Um, perfectionist adventurous readers who would like to know absolutely everything mm-hmm. we haven't deleted them entirely right. the first 
you too. I, like, oh. Part of me thinks, well, that's good because you're moving the story along. But also part of me from a creative angle also thinks, that's like having a painting and you've just taken out a haystack because there were too many haystacks. Yeah, yeah. Are you allowed to do that? You're playing God with a piece of interesting. I mean, you're you're the, it's, it's, it, that's fine, I guess. Yeah, you've done well. I mean, <laughs> a, I mean, there was a very nice video review of Mountains, Oceans, Giants that yeah. you can find on YouTube, mm-hmm. where the um, reviewer you know goes over this subject. Yes, and he says yes, he can see that some people might object. Yes, but on the other hand, the material is available there on the on the website. Oh, but right. on the whole, he thinks Godwin made the right decision. Okay, so we will we will <laughs> pass over that then for now. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. And so uh, I, I think uh, were we talking about um... uh, how he how he was trying to get from nineteen twenties Europe to the twenty seventh century, and what yes. what sorts of things did he need to to cover? And uh, he covered an enormous kind of range of angles of the way that humanity was doing, including a kind of recap of the First World War called the Urals War. Okay. Which was conducted with fire mines and and uh, you know devastated landscapes, which then gradually mushrooms would take root and grass would start growing again. You know, so that was the environmental kind of uh, uh, a- angle. But you know, some fairly horrendous scenes. There's a there's one kind of um, novelistic kind of uh, vignette in there called uh, Melise of Bordeaux, who was this um, power crazed dictator over a, a, a town zone region in France. Um, uh, well, you know, sort of sexual pathology and so on, but a very strong indication that, you know, if human beings can't control their own urges, how on earth are they supposed to control the world? Okay. Mm. And so did this, did this epic come out of the blue or were there any links with previous or subsequent epics? I think there's very strong links in, 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 in all the epics. I mean, I mean, Wang Lun, we had the explicit um, comparison of individual meekness against uh, state power. Mm-hmm. Right? In, in Wallenstein, we had an emperor who, in, by title and position, was supposed to be one of those powerful figures in Europe. But was pretty- exactly completely impotent. He had, he had no money. And he had all these religious wars going on around him that he was found impossible to control. Um, and then in Mog, mountain, sorry, I call it Mog for short, <laughs> Mountains, Oceans, Giants. Whenever you say that, I'm thinking of Mega Mog. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> On their yeah, stick. Yeah, those very vivid uh, <laughs> primary colour pictures, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was tech, technological hubris versus nature. Um but in the end, he decided that the human beings, the survivors from the horrendous aftermath, mm-hmm. would be in a, a landscape, an environment where you can have the seeds of recovery to, a, you know, humans living in harmony with nature. Mm-hmm. And then Manas? Yeah. Oh, Manas is when it becomes really a, a kind of in, intense depiction of how the human ego... Uh, Shall we say negotiates with uh, the the god, mm-hmm. with the world, to enable the human ego to be a a wonderful strong force in the world. Mm. Yeah, so triumphing it, over nature. Yes, um, 
but there's a, I mean, there is a definite, there's a definite pattern to these concerns, but painted on, uh, you know, very different canvases. Mm. So, Chris, the next question, really, then, it's been published. How was it received by critics and also the public during the 1920s? Uh, well, they reacted with a fair amount of bemusement. Um, there was quite a lot of hostility to it, although some were very enthusiastic. Uh, pretty well all of them noted that, uh, you know, the reader was going to find it fairly tough going because Dublin put lots of hurdles in their path. Mm -hmm. um, it seems fairly, you know, formulated in a fairly chaotic way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of horrid violence and uh, kind of pathological behaviour. Um, and at first, of course, though, they, you know, they hadn't had time to delve really deeply into it and into the um, underlying uh, kind of thought world of Dublin. Mm -hmm. So there was no real serious analysis at first. Um, I mean, one critic, was a, a poet called uh, Ernst Blass, said the writer has created a gigantic, animated, teeming, living world picture, analytical and mysterious, mythical and sign or oh, mythical and scientific. He has unsealed a flask of powerful potion. Cool. Right. But uh, but then this epic was not reprinted between 1924 and 1977. Right. So, you know, there was quite a lot of resistance, it seems, from the... Uh, kind of, you know, the literary academics mm -hmm. um, who are a bit nervous about uh, approaching this work. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and so have more recent critics viewed it? Yeah, they've... Um, um, I mean, some of them have been, you know, very helpful and very perceptive mm -hmm. and very um, kind of accommodating to Dublin's own vision what he was trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Gunter Grass, for example, in the 1960s, who really brought attention to Dublin by saying Dublin was my teacher. And this, this is Gunter Grass, who just written The Tin Drum, which became one of the most famous novels in post-war Germany. So, you know, some people started taking notice mm -hmm. of him. Um, and, uh, I mean, later on, Grass did a sort of a world tour and found that an awful lot of the ideas in Mountains, Oceans, Giants were kind of visible in bits of the world that he could see in some third world there in Thailand, in Africa, mm -hmm. or in big cities and so on. He could see, oh, you know, the, he, 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 you know, he was reflecting on passages in Mountains, Oceans, Giants that seemed to fit this scene that he was seeing here. Right. Um, in the 1970s, we then had W.G. Sebold's... Um, PhD thesis at the University of East Anglia, where he was very hostile to what he saw as Dublin's kind of wallowing in n n nasty violence mm -hmm. and so on. And he then published that thesis in German in uh, a few years later on and caused quite a controversy. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't like saying anything against W.G. Sebold because he was kind enough to write something nice about Wang Lun when a publisher was wondering whether or not he should, he should publish it. Mm. And Sebold said, yeah, no, the translation is, is really good. And so on, the publisher then decided not to go ahead with it. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I think Sebold is wrong in his, um, his attitude to, um, uh, to Dublin's, um, what he what he saw as irrationality, contradictoriness, uh, ambivalence, 
you know, failing to sort of you know, mm -hmm. put his position down mm -hmm. in any particular mm -hmm. spot. But everyone has to have a topic for a thesis. Oh, oh sure, yeah. But I mean, in Siebel's case, I mean, there were the lots of issues in his his life and uh, his attitude to Germany, where he grown up before he came to England, and uh, he he was working through some some um, issues in his own. Uh, okay. Becoming, shall we say? Okay. But I mean, his. Um, we, can't, we can't really comment on other. No, no. But I mean, I, I mean the um, I mean the, the the scholar who produced the most sort of fair-minded assessment of mm. I think of the um, Helmut Kiesel in the nineteen eighties, who pointed that to the extraordinary power of the ideological critique that arises from Alfred Doblin's ambivalence, because he's got this great tension between his two kind of opposing views, you know, is that humans over nature or humans with nature mm -hmm. is producing a, you know, a, a force field of, 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 of great power. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, okay. So, it, I mean, it, it's always, um, you know, big themes, big topics that are always going to cause a bit like Marmite, you know, strong flavour, <laughs> love it or hate it, kind of. Yeah. Okay. Uh, are we? I'll. I'll. Did was there anything else that we wanted? Yeah. To well, yeah. I just I'd, I'd point. I'd point out that um, you criticise my editorial interference. Can I mention where I forbore from exercising some? Well, I would. I didn't necessarily criticise. No. Well, but, we'll but I highlighted it yeah, and, and yes. said. But you know, I is did. It ethical? I did point out that I was strongly tempted to reorder the parts of the epi. So Ooh, I see. Uh -huh. with Iceland and Greenland. Yes. We would then go back to a prelude, mm -hmm. which takes it from the 1920s up to that 27th century. Yes. And then we'd have the aftermath. Uh -huh. I think that would have been a much more sensible presentation of this very complicated uh, yes, probably, yes. story. And it would mean that readers would be... Uh, uh, faced with the full power of this incredibly imaginative and strongly written uh, Iceland Green adventure yeah. right for the start, whereas mm -hmm. a lot of people, I think, would uh, um, have agreed with Thomas Mann quite early on that, oh dear, I picked up this book, but I don't think I can finish it get to the end. before they get to the good bits. Oh, okay. Oh, mm. interesting. All right. Okie dokie. Thank you, Chris. Are we, are we doing a reading today? Uh, yes. Um, I, I thought, you know, just to just to bring home to, you know, uh, listeners who are sort of fresh to, to Dublin, mm -hmm. just what his powers in imagination can do. Um, we'll have the, uh, the, the fleet setting off from Iceland for Greenland with all this stored heat from the volcanoes in these great huge freighters. Right. And then what happens around them. Okay, yeah, that sounds interesting. Right, so, shall we start the reading? Yes, please do. And suddenly they all became aware of the tourmaline vessels, the floating cargo that had come among them. The bowels of the ships were packed full of webbing charged with heat from the volcanoes, snatched hurriedly from raging, huffing planes of fire. The fleet of tourmaline carriers was named after the volcanoes from which they had drawn their power, broad-shouldered Herdubrag, terrible Dengyang Katlach. 
There seemed to be some reluctance in these webs to travel to Greenland to give away this life and blood and spread it over the land at the behest of the town zones. None of the leaders suspected that some of those who sailed with them had a notion to shield the tourmaline vessels with their love. They meant to blow open the cargo holds. Then, after a week of aimless sailing, came the sudden order. Prepare all the machines. Spread out all around Greenland, along Denmark Strait in the east and up Baffin Bay to the west, to Ellesmere Island. There was a further order. Assign a few guard ships to the tourmaline vessels. No one is to approach the great freighters. Those who wished to scuttle the freighters thought at first they'd been caught out but it was something else that caused these precautions. The hulls laden with volcanic heat pressed steadily on through the ocean and began to acquire remarkable company. Not far from Iceland, the crews of escort and guard vessels had noticed great numbers of fish gathering around the fleet. They thought nothing of it. A few days later, they noticed that the fish showed special interest in the tourmaline vessels. Brown seaweed clung to the hulls and resisted the action of waves. When ice flows shaved part of the bow clear, new clumps of seaweed appeared almost at once, as if drawn by magnetic force, seemed almost to spring out of the massive hull. The tourmaline freighters wore the seaweed like trailing beards. The screws shuddered and shook their blades free, but the plants gained entry to the long shaft tunnels, invaded dark, narrow channels deep into the enormous vessels, wound around the heavy, smoothly spinning steel shafts. Men had to go down to the freezing spaces, hack away with hooks and knives the growth that threatened to smother the ships. They hauled heavy streamers up on deck past the astonished crew. These were not gelatinous filaments of the delicate algae that floated in the waves below, dense as meadow grass, colouring the sea olive green. Rather, they were arm-thick shrubbery, many-branched, equipped with sharp teeth inches long. They produced berries big as apples that served as swim bladders. These lifted like heads. Cleaning details set to work on every freighter. They had to push heaps of algae from ladders with brooms, beat them from spars with sticks. Whales swam all around the tourmaline ships, kept the freighter's company, broke the surface with a wave-like arcing motion, pushed blindly past the escort ships. They swam with open moor, propelled by rapid strokes of the tail fin. Long, curving, narrow teeth by the hundred, honey yellow in those great jaws. These timid creatures followed the transports with grim determination. When boats from the escort vessels set out with harpoons they had made for sport, the creatures slipped away. But when the boats tried to block them from the freighters, they let rip with angry sweeping tails. During these days, the lighting and communications facilities on the freighters degraded. Engineers understood that the disturbance must lie in the volcano ships themselves. No heat was leaking from the mountains of mineral webbing. People went down into the holds where the webs hung across the whole width. The oily insulation was nowhere defective. Other substances unknown were being radiated. At night the volcano ships glowed dimly, sailed in a haze. Lamps flickered, went out for hours at a time. Then the leaders, uneasy now, ordered an end to aimless cruising. Everything was to be made ready for the assault on Greenland. 
but the volcano ships pitching heavily through wastes of ice were touched by a spell. They seemed to want to sink into the ice. A night of slow sailing was enough to secure the vessels to the sea as if with hawsers. Scraped off floating, dying seaweed came to life again, put out new stems and leaves. The edges of ice floes were overrun by these algae, which sent long stalks and organs like palm leaves up the sides of the ships, clamped the vessels to the ice. The freighters were freed with fire and explosives. The freighter crews were strangely distracted. Soon it became impossible to draft people onto the tourmaline ships. Within hours they went about in a lethargy, a kind of obsession. Like opium smokers, they sat here, sat there, plodded laboriously about their tasks. Faces became immobile masks, but within they were sweetly moved, gazed through ladders, doors, through walls and decks, up to the sky, saw landscapes of toppling trees, clouds stretching long, warm drops falling on their skin, their lips, they licked, swallowed. A violent, irresistible, limpidinous feeling ran through them. Men trembled in a chill of passion. Women shook themselves, went slowly twitching. Every limb was filled with lust. Every movement brought frenzy nearer. They embraced, and when they had mingled their bodies and uncoiled again, they remained unsatisfied. By the end of the second day, people had to be forcibly removed from the freighters. All inessential crew left the volcano ships. The fleets plunged through the ocean towards their designated targets. Now at night, you could see with the naked eye what lay inside the great volcano, volcano freighters. When the sun went down and lights glimmered from other ships, the tourmaline vessels, on which no lamps burned, were sheathed in a pale light. A delicate white light shimmered on screws, spars, lines, on encroaching masses of vegetation. In the dark, you could see water lit up for many yards around the ships. The personnel transports and escort vessels left an ever-widening gap between them and the floating warehouses. Small teams risked crossing to them for no more than a few hours at a time. Everyone was nervous. They lay around, conscience-stricken. What should be done with the terrible volcano holes dragging along behind, looming like monsters? No one thought now of blowing them up. They begged the leaders to ram the tourmaline freighters onto thick ice and then flee. But what would happen to the webbing? Maybe the energy stores would melt, drift south in the current. The insulation might break down. They might send fearsome beings of fire and radiation against the continents. They must be rid of them, but they can't just run away. On to Greenland. Leaders and crews shuddered at what was to come, how it would unfold. Oh, it's quite bleak, isn't it? I mean, it's ex I'm quite into it now. I'd quite like to find out what happens next. Yeah. Is we interesting? So I, as you were going along, what they said the um swim. Did you say swim bladders at one point? For yeah. The, yeah, for the the bulbs of and the, they, on the they like seaweed. he likened it to heads. Yeah. So his language is more figurative now in ocean mountains, oceans, giants. Several times through there. With like the masks, the like clay masks and and that kind of thing for the for the faces. So perhaps because he's seeking, he wants us to be clear um, in this futuristic kind of world. It's all very like it's like nature is holding them 
is holding them back or is is kind of flocking to it or is, are they pulling it back are they what are they doing are they are they, they ain't we seen don't nothing. know you ain't seen nothing yet oh they know i mean those uh i say those that whole episodes are tremendous tremendous feat of imagination wow and they put jules Verne far in the shade oh so i might have to read this one chris <laughs> read, read part six and seven first part six of the, oh okay yeah. interesting Ah, yes. I feel like, I'm not exhausted, but I feel like kind of what's going to happen next. It's that, oh, okay. And again, there's the sense of a really large sweeping landscape. Kind of you're, you're, you're really with the fleet. Yes. You're going out. Yes. Well, he did, he did very detailed um, researches on I, I mean, how many of us know anything about the geography of Iceland? I know. Very he was, you know, he was he was consulting encyclopedias, mm-hmm. and travel reports, and so on, and sketching his own map and where the volcanoes were, so they could have the trains running in the right direction mm-hmm. to drop their mineral bombs to cause the volcanoes to erupt. And right, yeah, interesting. Yes. Oh gosh. Okay. Thank you so much. Um. Yeah. My my knowledge of of Iceland is limited. I I did geology mm. for my degree, but it's kind of, yeah. I've been inside a glacier. I've fallen into a crevasse. <laughs> oh, ouch. It was the. I was roped. It's fine. Yeah, I had crampons on. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was scary. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you can imagine. Goodness. Wow. Oh, right. Thank you so much. Well, that was another really interesting episode. And actually, um. Lots that we could probably still talk about, I'm sure, but I I think our time has come to an end today, and it's it's probably well. I did, uh, to say I did touch earlier um, on this his 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 reading of African anthropology. Oh, yes. got almost the whole of book five mm-hmm. is a very very interesting compendium of how traditional peoples mm-hmm. and their folklore could be imported into a very um, um, unhappy Europe, mm-hmm. which was nourished now on synthetic food. So they're all becoming extremely unhealthy. And the, the, the Italian, these um, African theatrical troops mm-hmm. are presenting to these audiences, you know, what what's the basic reason for their unhappiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's very interesting how, you know, we've gone from this kind of high-tech... Uh, um, you know, wars and 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 uh, technological hubris mm. back to you know roots of of folklore and kind of you know human wisdom. Yes, and that's quite comforting, yeah. isn't it? It's that like the hygge, the kind of we want to be embraced by warmth and nature, and we want to feel like cuddled and safe uh, to not, relax. But I'm not quite sure that was the. Uh, <laughs> It's not a comfort blanket, no. No, but this isn't a comfort blanket. I don't feel comforted listening to that part, the extract. Um, Okie dokie. Well, so that's it for this time, and we'll be back soon with another episode. We will, we will indeed. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Epic Worlds of Alfred Dublin. Join us next time to explore more about this fascinating writer's life and works. Meanwhile, visit the website beyond-alexanderplatz.com for posts about Dublin and some of his unjustly neglected contemporaries, as well as downloads of translations. 
So until next time, happy reading.